Well, good morning, Sedaris, and welcome to church this morning. I'm so happy to be with you um, on this fine Sunday. Uh, thanks for joining us. My name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here at Care for the Sedaris community. And um, today, uh, we are starting off a new series here at, at Sedaris, uh, a series that we do each and every year, actually, called Advent. Advent. Um, so if you have your Bible with you, go ahead. Open that thing up to the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke. Luke is in the New Testament. It goes Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's the third gospel that we have. Luke, open it up to Luke chapter 2. Um, if you don't have a Bible, uh, what I usually say is go ahead and pick one up uh, under your seat, but, um, and you can take that one home with you. But if you don't have a Bible, what you can do is you can just contact us on our website, and we'll have Jeff Bezos deliver that to your home. Um, we actually, you know... We're in Seattle, so we have Jeff on retainer to go run Bibles to people. So if that's you, go ahead and let us know on our website. He'll get you one. He'll bring it right to your doorstep for you. Okay? It's pretty cool he does that for us. Um, well, welcome to the beginning of our 2020 Advent series. We're so glad that you're here. Um, Advent is this strange word that really only Christians know, and it, it's, it's, it comes from the Latin, and it means uh, coming. It's just a fancy word for, for coming uh, that comes from the Latin. And so Advent is a season that the church has taken the four Sundays leading up to Christmas to hone in on and unpack the coming of Jesus, uh, both of them, the first time a little baby in a manger and the second time when he returns to fully inaugurate, well, he inaugurated it in his first coming and to fully consummate his kingdom on earth. Those are the two comings of Jesus. And each week in the season of Advent, we examine one of the subjects that you see posted just about everywhere in the holiday season on signs and things like this, hope, peace, joy, and love. Each week we'll unpack one of those subjects as it relates to the coming of Christ. And we're entitling this Advent series this year, In the Midst, In the Midst. And we're calling it that because the comings of Jesus Christ show up in the midst of darkness in order to bring light. The coming of Jesus is him showing up in the midst of darkness in order to bring light. We just sang about it in that Christmas song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Uh, darkness and light. What are we talking about here? Well, light and dark is a major literary theme that, that New Testament writers use uh, throughout the New Testament to really talk about God, light, showing up to rescue a dark world that is um, in bondage and in the dominion of sin darkness. But it doesn't talk about it in just some grand cosmological sense. Uh, no, it, it talks about it all the way down to the particulars of each person's life. Every person experiences uh, darkness as it's related to sin, not just their own sin, but sin generally in the world that has touched each and every thing. And the advent of Christ proclaims that he shows up in the midst of our darkened lives to create pockets of light for us. And this is a message that we need now more than ever before. And each week we're going to start by examining the first coming of Christ. We're going to unpack a part of the first coming of Christ, you know, baby Jesus in a manger. And we're going to attempt to breathe the full meaning back into it. Because the first advent, the coming of Jesus, is not just a nice story. It's not just a pretty arrangement of figurines on your mantle or on your table. It's, it's not just a nostalgic time of the year that gives us some warm fuzzies. It's the event, the very event of God coming back into the world which fundamentally changed it. And it changes each and every 
day in it, ever since it happened. And today we're going to talk about hope. Hope in the midst of darkness. And as our starting point, we'll take a story from a few weeks after Jesus' birth, where his parents, Joseph and Mary, brought him to the temple in Jerusalem. If you know the Jesus story, he was born in a little town called Bethlehem. Five and a half miles north is Jerusalem. Jesus' parents show up with him to offer the sacrificial offering that was customary of the Jewish people for the firstborn child. And so let's read that together. Let's read the word of God together uh, from our starting point in Luke chapter 2. We're going to pick it up in verse 21. Then we'll pray, and then we'll start our teaching on it, okay? Luke 2, chapter 21. When the eight days were completed for his circumcision, he was named Jesus. So Jewish boys were circumcised eight days after they were born, and at that point they were also named. He was named Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived. The angel showed up to Mary and said, you shall name him Jesus. And when the days of their purification according to the law of Moses were finished, after he had healed it from his circumcision, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Just as as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male will be dedicated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice. And what sacrifice did they offer? According to that, what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Um, This this text from Luke here is where we discover that the family that Jesus was born into was, was poor, um, the typical sacrifice for um, firstborn in the Jewish culture would be a, a ram or a lamb, um, except there is a provision for people who are poor. They can offer up something much cheaper because they can't afford livestock to young pigeons. Uh, so Jesus is born into a poor family, and back then there's no such thing as upward mobility, and we'll see him make edge out a life as a carpenter for 30 years, but I'm getting way ahead of myself. Here we go, verse 25. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to Israel's consolation. And the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, he entered the temple. When the parents brought the child Jesus to perform for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him up in his arms, praised God, and said, Now, Master, you can dismiss your servant in peace. As you promised, he's praising God. For my eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared it in the presence of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. That is, this little baby is going to reveal who God is to the rest of the world and glory to your people, Israel. His father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and told his mother Mary, Indeed, this child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel, and a sign that will be opposed, and the sword will pierce your own soul, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Now there is also a prophetess, Anna, a daughter of Phanuel, the tribe of Asher. She was well along in years, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and was a widow for 84 years. She did not leave the temple, serving God night and day with fasting and prayers. At that very moment, she came up and began to thank God and to speak about him to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Would you pray with me? Father God, we 
We come before you and in this holiday season that is like none other that we've experienced, Lord. God, we ask you to to comfort us. God, we ask you to hold us. We ask you to care for us through your word today. God, as we open up your word that is, that is to, to give life and to give light, we pray that it would do just that for all, everyone who is tuning in. God, that, that you would be uh, seen as, as a good and affectionate father who cares for his people, who frees his people from the dominion of sin and darkness, God. We pray that you show us that through the coming of Christ 2,000 years ago. So God, I thank you for all my friends who are here. I pray that you would just uh, eliminate distractions that they might be uh, uh, exposed to right now. That you would help all of us just look to your word to find life. pray all this in the name of Jesus and by your spirit. Amen. Amen. So today we're going to talk about hope. The hope of Advent. And and here we have two parallel accounts that encapsulate incredible examples of hope. One by a man, Simeon, another by a woman, Anna. And, And I hope that by exploring them, many of us can find hope in the midst of our darkness right now. Any darkness that comes up in our lives, whatever that may be. But before jumping into it and really looking at what is their true hope, we have to really examine false hope. We have to unpack what false hope is because many of us don't know that we have hope hang-ups. That, that part of the reason of why we not, might not be experiencing life is that we just have a hang-up when it comes to hope. Okay, so we're just going to talk about the problem uh, as it's related to hope and having a hope hang-up. But, but then after that, we're going to just go through a three-part solution to that problem, okay? So our sermon's really uh, simple and straightforward today. We're going to unpack the problem of hope, and then we're going to unpack a solution that has three parts to it, okay? So the problem, and then a three-part solution. I'm so glad that you guys are here with us. I'm so glad that you're tuning in. I think this is one of the most important topics that we can engage in this season, um, especially not just in the season of Advent, but in this season of coronavirus, racial injustice, everything that's been going on, um, political polarities. What is hope? What can we put our hope in? That's what we're going to unpack today. Let's start with false hope, okay? Now, some people might say that people are miserable when they don't have anything to hope in. And I suppose that's true, um, but the grand narrative of Scripture tells us that misery also comes from false hope. False hope. What am I talking about? Well, let me provide that to you by way of illustration. And, And you know pastors, they typically provide illustrations from their lives, and I've been stuck in my house since March, and so you're going to get an illustration from my home. About six weeks ago, it was getting colder in Seattle. It was getting very cold in Seattle. And, and uh, the temperature started dropping, and we quickly realized that in our home that um, our furnace was having a really hard time keeping up to produce the necessary heat load to keep us warm, you know? And so what I did was I went to the, the, the store. I got that plastic film you can put over your windows. I put that up. I noticed, oh, yeah, these windows are really old. They're single pane. There's cracks all around them. This should help. But it didn't. 
Uh, it didn't help at all. In fact, our, our, our house, our furnace couldn't get our house warmer than 65 degrees or so. Um, now, that made me uh, grumpy, made me cold and grumpy. It made my uh, wife, uh, Christy, she's eight months pregnant. It made her very happy, okay? She's really happy by the fact that the house couldn't get warmer than 65. I was upset with it. Uh, we eventually realized, okay, you know what? Our furnace, it's almost 20 years old. Time to get a new furnace. So I I lined up a couple HVAC companies to come out and give a quote for the project. That took about a week of getting them there and to get their quotes. Took us another couple days to decide which one we wanted to go with. And when we were able to eventually identify, okay, we're going to go with this company to install our new furnace, they said, you know what? We'll be there in about 10 days. Okay. That means that we were really stuck in a cold house for, you know, the better part of about three or four weeks uh, for us, which was really hard for me. It was, uh, she, Chrissy thought it was great. I found it pretty miserable, um, but in terms of overall suffering, really not that big of a deal. But, but, but what made it particularly difficult was that even when I was able to forget about my coldness, the furnace was still trying to do its job. It, it would cycle on a handful of times uh, each hour, but it would only kick over and turn on and, and push warm air about, well, a quarter of the time. And so even the times when I was able to forget that I was cold, uh, the furnace would click on and I would hear and it would remind me that I was, in fact, cold, uh, which was demoralizing on another level. <laughs> um, and, and here's the thing. It was difficult for me to recover from this. And even though we had a new furnace coming, it was on its way. It was promised, along with all the benefits that would be attached to it. It was promised. I had paid the deposit on it. It was scheduled to be installed. My attitude in the waiting was one of frustration and discouragement. Day in and day out. I mean, I was grumpy at home. You can ask, uh, ask Christy and my girls. I was grumpy at home. Once we got the furnace installed, one of the first things Christy said was like, whoa, you're in a good mood. And I was like, yeah, I'm not freezing for a couple hours every morning. <laughs> Now, now this is obviously a very incomplete analogy to our relationship to waiting for the promised second coming of Christ. But, but I share it to illustrate an existential reality that I experience myself and that I see all the time, where, where the followers of Jesus, even though they know that Jesus has promised to come and solve all the problems that sin has unleashed in our world and in our lives, even though they know that our day in and our day out realities consists of continual reminders of sin and suffering. And we live continually frustrated and discouraged lives as a result. We can become miserable, miserable Christians. Now, now this experience of of waiting and and misery might be one that we all are a little familiar with due to coronavirus, but it was common before coronavirus for many of us, if you can Remember that time, it seems like a lifetime ago, and it's going to actually be the case after we get a vaccine and we all come outside of our homes again. Uh, Miserable Christians have, and they will continue to walk the streets before Jesus returns. Um, How can I be confident of that? Well, like I said, I'm, I'm a reformed, miserable Christian myself, okay? And here's what I learned. This miserable waiting, it comes from a very common version of Christianity that I held and that I see everywhere that's incomplete, but it goes like this. The Christian life is all about believing, 
And it's all about doing the right things in the midst of hardship and sufferings. And and, and if you do that, if you kind of grin and bear while you believe the right things, if you just hold on throughout this um, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short life, to quote Thomas Hobbes for you philosophy buffs out there, a life that's certain to be wrought with difficulties, if you just hold on, then you will make it to the promised existence called heaven. Well, all, all, all hardships, they'll be gone then. Now, now, this is an incomplete notion of what it actually means to follow Jesus, but it's a very common version that many people hold, and, and usually we're unaware that we hold it. We hold it subconsciously, which means that we, can, our, we still articulate that we have hope in Jesus, that, that we can trust him for, for peace and joy and, and love, and we're going to see that when he comes back. But our present existential reality as it relates to our faith is one that's marked by this frustration and discouragement and misery. We can call this Christianity a a distant future-only Christianity, where the blessings that Jesus promises are only thought to come in the future when Jesus himself returns. Now, don't get me wrong. This is a very understandable notion of Christianity. It's very understandable for us to take this notion of this distant future-only Christianity It itself actually isn't the problem. What it is, is it's a bad solution we've created to uh, solve a different problem. And that problem goes like this. What are we to do when we ask God for blessings and we don't receive them? How are we to say that God is faithful to his promises when we ask him for things that he tells us that he wants to give us? We ask him for them, but then we don't receive them. You see, this is very understandable for us to take this distant future-only Christianity. Very understandable. It's actually a defense mechanism that's meant to preserve the notion that God is for us, that he loves us, that he cares for us. But it itself is actually a trap. We say God, God will give us all those things, just not now. He must be saving up those things for later. And and in some cases, this might be true. But here's the thing. Those who hold to this version of Christianity will will fall into one of two equally deadly options when you think about the blessings tied to your faith in Jesus as being those future-only blessings. And and those traps go like this. They're the traps of superficiality and and inferiority. Uh, Superficiality. If you hold to distant future-only Christianity, you might pretend that these incredible notions of hope, peace, joy, and love that are talked about in the New Testament, that they're true for your life. But what happens is when you talk about them, these words actually ring hollow. And all of us have postured in this way before, right? The other option is inferiority. Um, Because maybe for some of us, for a season in our life, we actually did earnestly pursue these blessings that God talks about, this, this joy, this peace, this love that are talked about in the New Testament pages that seem to be incredible. And as we earnestly pursue them, we don't see them actually coming to fruition in our lives. That we had this continual nagging reminder that we weren't experiencing them. And, and so we've told our thing, ourselves things like, oh, I'm, I'll never get there. I'm not good enough inferiority. And those are really hard messages for a human being, a human spirit, to take over the long haul. And so that inferiority, uh, that, that discouragement, that uh, 
hopelessness, that condemnation eventually turns into apathy. Who really cares anyway? You know, who really cares? So, so this is interesting, isn't it? On the one hand, you have superficial Christians who seem super confident. And on the other hand, you have Christians with inferiority com- complexes, both suffering from the same disease, this future distant only blessing Christianity. And so the question we're asking is, what's the cure? What's the cure to this hope? Hmm? What is this hope that's only to be realized? I'll put it actually like this. What's the cure to this false hope that we think is only to be realized in Jesus' second coming? Now we get to move towards our solution, okay? And the first part of the solution goes like this. It goes like this. It's to acknowledge that the blessings of Christ... Just simply acknowledge and trust and believe that those blessings aren't meant for the future only. Or if I were to say it in the furnace analogy, Jesus sends us some space heaters to put in our house in the meantime to experience his blessings now. In fact, one of the HVAC companies offered to give us a couple of space heaters in the meantime while we waited. See, the first part of the solution is to get your history right. Or, or more specifically, is, is to get God's interaction with history right. Here's how to think of the, the advent of Jesus. Here's how to think about the first advent of Jesus. You ready? It's still happening. The first advent of Jesus is still happening. And if that statement catches you off guard, you, you might be victim of this distant future-only Christianity that we talked about. But let me explain. Throughout his life, Jesus said things like this. He said, blessed, or happy, present tense, are the poor in spirit, for theirs is, present tense, the kingdom of heaven. Blessed, happy, present tense, are those who mourn. Blessed, present tense, are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, Essentially, he's, he's saying that, that happy are those presently who witness injustice and desire someone to fix it. Um, happy, uh, blessed, present tense are you when you're persecuted. These are all the words of Jesus. Those are all from the Sermon on the Mount. And, and in John chapter 10, he put it a different way. He put it like this. He was interpreting for his disciples. We don't have a time to look at the parable. It's the parable of the good shepherd, and this is one of the parables that Jesus decides to interpret for his disciples, and he's interpreting it for them. In, the, in this parable, we clearly have uh, a situation uh, of Jesus leading his sheep in the midst of uh, an enemy trying to take the sheep. So this is before Jesus comes back and fully, inaug- fully consummates his kingdom. Okay, so John chapter 10, parable of the good shepherd. Jesus says this. He says, I have come so that my followers may, present tense, have life abundantly. He's talking about the present, that his followers would have life abundantly. Not at the end of time. These are just a few examples. But Jesus actually argued this over and over and over in the gospel accounts. That, that in the midst of some pretty hard things, mourning, injustice, persecution, spiritual oppression, physical uh, suffering, that following him would be a life of blessedness and fullness. How can that be? Well, in order for us to believe this claim, we have to know where we are in history. So let me tell you, we are in the end times. 
Now, I'm not interpreting our present circumstances or anything like that. I'm not saying it's the end times because of coronavirus or because I'm interpreting some geopolitical event or anything like that. I'm telling you that we're in the end times because that's almost exactly what every single New Testament theologian would tell you. The end times, biblically from the Old Testament point of view, are the times when God's kingdom comes to earth again. That started 2,000 years ago in the birth of Christ. That's why in the, in the gospel accounts, you have Jew after Jew coming up to Jesus and asking him, are you going to um, inaugurate and consummate your kingdom in full right now? That's their understanding of the, the, the end times would show up when the messianic figure showed up on the scene. And they did. Now, most people are surprised that the end times are, are still going on and, and have gone on for as long as they have. But these end times started when the Messiah showed up in the person of Jesus Christ and his kingdom entered into the world. And if his kingdom is present, then the benefits tied to the kingdom are accessible. And here's the key to understanding this that's honestly a little bit complex. It's a little bit confusing. Um, Jesus was born, he lived, he taught, he died. He rose three days later. He spent 40 days with his disciples and then he ascended up to heaven again, but he's still present on earth today. Um, you could say this in a variety of ways, that, that the first advent is being stretched over 2,000 years, or maybe we have like a 1.5 advent that's taking place now. But is that really what you're telling us, Ryan? So, some of you might um, know your Bibles and say, well, you know, Paul in Romans chapter 8, uh, Colossians chapter 3, the author of the, the Hebrews, uh, mentions a couple of times that Jesus is up sitting at the right hand of Father. He's not here right now. Well, yes, that's absolutely right. The, the New Testament does testify to that. But it also says this over and over and over again. Um, Paul made the Colossian church aware of this kind of Advent-stretching reality. It wasn't 2,000 years for him. He called it a mystery. This is a Colossians 1, 24 through 27. 124 through 27, we'll, uh, I think we'll throw it on the screen for you. Paul said this, Now I rejoice in my suffering for you, and I am, con- I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's affliction for his body, that is the church. I have become its servant according to God's commission that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. What's the mystery? God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, Christ here. Paul prayed this reality over the Ephesian church. In Ephesians chapter 3, he said, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. I pray that he may grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his Spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Christ can be here, Paul says. Paul taught this to the Roman church in in chapter 8. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you. If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Now, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit gives life because of righteousness. Christ is here in you. Paul included this reality in his argument to live an obedient life to the Galatian church. Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in 
me. And then just one more for good measure. I just wanted to show you, this is everywhere in the New Testament. Paul told the Corinthian church to be mindful of this reality. 2 Corinthians 13, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you yourselves not recognize that Jesus Christ is in you? You see, in each one of these circumstances, Paul is speaking pastorally. He's trying to help people experience a full life. His strategy to do that, to tell them that Jesus and his kingdom and all the blessings tied to it is here now in them. Where did Paul get this notion? Well, he got it from Jesus. In John chapter 14, Jesus told his disciples a handful of things. We were there last week. We're going to go there again this week. But he told them so many things to highlight this reality that he would be present with his followers. He says this, John chapter 14, verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I am coming to you. In a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live too. On that day, you will know that I am in my Father, you are in me, and I am in you. Skip down a little further. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. You see what this means for our our hope then? Distant future-only Christianity places the comings of Christ at the first advent 2,000 years ago and his advent to come. But, but historic, authentic Christianity proclaims that Christ is still adventing now in our lives every day. That this first advent has been stretched out over 2,000 years in the lives and in the hearts and in the dwellings of his followers. That Christ was present yesterday, today, will be present tomorrow in his followers. He has shown up as Emmanuel, God with us. We just sang that song which means that we can have the hope that he will show up in our darkness and bring light right now. And if you believe that and truly accept it, it changes everything. It changes everything with regard to hope. Why? Because hope isn't just wishful thinking. It's not just positive thinking. Hope is trusting in a future reality that gives you energy today. Today, I typically use this example when I talk about it. It doesn't carry as much weight and during coronavirus. Just think back to a time before coronavirus if you can, okay? Um, I usually use this example. Um, hope, the energy that comes from hope is, is the difference between working on a typical Wednesday afternoon and working on a Wednesday afternoon when tomorrow starts your week-long vacation. You have far more energy in the second of those experiences, do you not? You have far more because there's a reality that's coming that's giving you hope in that afternoon to wrap up everything, to pass off the projects you need to pass off. All of a sudden, your Wednesday afternoon is super, super productive when typically, I mean, Wednesday afternoon is the lull of my productivity in the week. When you believe that Jesus can show up in your life and bring you light, light right now, it changes everything. It changes how you relate to darkness. It changes how you relate to setbacks, pushbacks, suffering. It can provide you the energy you need now because you know that blessing is right around the corner. It's just not waiting for you off at some point when you die, although that is when it will fully be here. But we have space heaters now. So trusting that Jesus wants to show up and bring life to your everyday existence, that's part one to the solution. Uh, Part two goes like this. 
We must hope in the right things if we're actually to be encouraged and strengthened. We actually have to hope in the right things if we want to be encouraged and strengthened. Um, Perhaps you've hoped for things before from God. You've hoped for Jesus to show up in a real way. You've been let down. I get it. I've been there many times. But here's the thing. For hope to actually work, for it actually to have power to energize you today, you not only need to trust that Jesus can show up, you actually have to place your trust and hope in the correct objects. That's what Simeon and Anna show us. That's what they show us here. Now, the world might tell you something like this with regards to your unmet um, hopes. Uh, Your therapist might tell you something uh, like this to help you reset your expectations. If you have hopes or expectations and um, they let you down, you know, you hope or have an expectation of another person and that person lets you down, um, it means that you have to lower your hopes and expectations or else your happiness is going to take a hit. You're not going to be satisfied with that person. Now, that, that seems logical, and, and it seems like good advice for dealing with people. But when you're dealing with the all-powerful, good, and, and loving God, it actually works the opposite way around. A good, the, a good theological counselor would tell you that your problem isn't that your hopes are too big for God to fulfill. A theological counselor might come alongside you and say, you know what, perhaps your hopes are too small. You see, we don't have to lower our expectations with regards to God. That's not, that's not why we're not seeing them realized. We actually have to raise our expectations. Many of us have just, this distant future-only Christianity is actually just um, in extending our expectations. God will fulfill that then. But actually, Simeon and Anna are showing us we actually have to raise our expectations for what we want from God. Because here's the thing, and just one last thing before we actually look at what these things are. Um, what what Simeon and and Anna tell us we should hope for. Um, One more thing. Uh, You don't know what's going to make you happy. You don't. You you have no idea what's going to make you happy. Now, you might might be like, who is this guy? Uh, How can he look at me and and tell me that I have no idea uh, what's going to make me happy? Uh, He doesn't know me. But I can say it because I'm human too. I'm continually grasping after things that I think are going to make me happy, only to be let down and left at grasping for more. I'm human too. I'm also continually setting myself up for that disappointment when it comes to, to my happiness. But do you know what? The times that I've experienced the most fulfillment, the most contentment, the biggest blessing, and achieved that extended rest of not obsessing over my own desires. Those are the times that come when I hope for and pursue the things that God says will make me truly happy. You see, that there's holes in all of our hearts, uh, these desires that only God can fill. We try to put a whole lot of other things in there, achievement, fame, knowledge, security, um, sex, control, relationships, but they all just still leave us wanting. They don't fill or fit those, hard, those heart-level desire gaps that we all have. Now, why is that? Because they're second-rate. They're second-rate. We were meant to experience so much more than those things. But often, these are the things that we hope to receive from God. 
these are the things that mark our prayers. These are the things that we're asking God for. We're asking God for second-rate things. Simeon and Anna are going to show us how to ask for the good and best things. So if you're frustrated in all of your Christless enterprises, if you're dissatisfied with your worldly desires, with your worldly longings, this is for you, okay? Here are some better hopes. Simeon the priest, Anna the prophetess. Now there's lots of parallels between these two. They're both old. They both have spent a lot of time at, at the temple in Jerusalem. They both encounter this baby and are illuminated to his messianic nature by the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit tips them off. But most importantly, they were hoping for God to do something incredible for his people. This is the part of these accounts that Luke didn't want you to miss out on in this passage. Okay, there's lots of similarities, but Luke underlines this. How did he do it? Well, look at the repeated phrase in each account. Look at the repeated phrase in each account. Verse 25, he tells us that Simeon was looking forward to Israel's consolation. Now skip down to verse 35. Luke tells us that, oh, it's not in 35. Sorry, friends. Oh, it's, it's in 38. It's at the very end. It says that she... She was thanking God and to speak about him to all who were looking forward to, looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. So we have this first hope that Simeon has, which is this, this incredible consolation of God. And then, and then Anna has this looking forward to the redemption of Israel. Consolation and redemption. And not just for themselves, for all of God's people everywhere. These were the objects of their hope. And we can't understate how much energy these objects gave them. We learned from Anna that she was married for seven years, then became a widow, then was a widow for 84 years. Somehow she's over the age of 100 years old and she is praying and fasting day in and out. What is giving her that energy? Might it be the hope of the redemption of Israel, of Jerusalem? She was likely around the temple so often as a widow to receive the food distribution that would have been for widows. She lived a life that, that she probably couldn't, 85% of it, if you would have asked her on her wedding day, that's not what she would have imagined. But she has the energy to continue earnestly seeking after the Lord over the age of 100. The redemption of Jerusalem gave her that energy. Simeon's example is a lot more like our circumstances. Luke tells us that he had been told by the Holy Spirit that he would see the Messiah in his lifetime. Uh, just like us, Jesus could break into any second of his day. And so he walked around expectantly in the Spirit, perhaps today. Today he would see this consolation show up in his duties. Gave him energy. Hope giving energy. So what do these words mean then? Okay, let's start with consolation. Um, this word console is the same Greek word that's used in the Septuagint. That's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. To begin Isaiah chapter 40, that, that, that starts with consolation. Consolation, my people. 
It's the great hope of Israel in the exile was that these prophets showed up. The prophets showed up on the front end of Israel to say, you guys are not walking in the way of the Lord. Judgment is coming. And then after the judgment comes, they show up and and they have these unique promises. Consolation, consolate, comfort is coming is what Isaiah is saying in chapter 40. That God is going to show up and come for them again. He will show up in their darkness, not just make it better, but he will console them. He will comfort their hurting souls. It says that he will gather his people like lambs in his arms, and he will gently lead those along who are nursing. The entire chapter is about this all-powerful God that chooses to console and comfort a sinful people. That part of the, nothing's changed in the Israelites. They're exiled. They're, they're still just as sinful. But this God chooses to console them, to comfort them, and nurse them back to health again. And, and so the consolation of Israel is really the applica- application of the tenderness of God to a, a, a people that's weary of war. The, the caring of a God to a people who are, are weary of being refugees. The, the pardon of God to people who are sick with sin. It's the restoration of everything in our past that's been lost. It's nothing less than a heavenly father's tender affection for his children that comes from pardoning all our sins and burying them in the depths of the sea so that he can heal us. Are you looking for God's consolation? Have you placed your hope in his comfort? Have you asked him for his consolation? Not just for yourself, but for others. Because Jesus shows up. He shows up in the discomfort of our sin and in the sin of the world and provides direct consolation and comfort when asked for it. This is the testimony the church throughout 2,000 years has always said. When we ask God for comfort and consolation, he always shows up and delivers it to us. It can be yours, comfort and consolation. Second, what's the second thing we should hope for? What was, what was Anna the prophetess looking forward to? This is the redemption of Jerusalem. The redemption of Jerusalem. What, what does it mean to redeem? Um, well, redemption is an Old Testament theme that, that is throughout the entire Old Testament, really going all the way back to the, um, the, the, um, God's deliverance of his people from slavery in Egypt, even before then at some points, but the primary way was God redeemed his people with an outstretched arm and a mighty hand out of their slavery in Egypt. So this redemption is synonymous with deliverance, with freedom, with liberation from enemies that surround you, from enemies that threaten you. You see, consolation speaks to the tenderness of God towards his people. Redemption speaks to the power of God on behalf of his people. Is how these two work together. Luke's hoping to give us a bigger picture of God than we currently have. We don't just have a God for, who cares for us and nurses our wounds, although he does. We have a God who's powerful to deliver us from that which caused the wounds in the first place, sin. We don't just worship a God who powerfully redeems us from the power of, and bondage of sins. We're all slaves to sin. We have a God who will nurse us back to health again after he does that. So what are you hoping for? What are you looking forward to? What are you asking God for? Is it the consolation and redemption of your soul in the world? If not, I bet you're a miserable Christian just like I was 
frustrated, discouraged. You see, we have to move past hoping for our own happiness from God. And we have to start hoping for his consolation and redemption to be unleashed on the world. These are the hopes that, re- that, that lead to real prayers that God works with. And Jesus' followers begin to find and experience real life when they start hoping and they start praying these prayers that are greater than their own happiness. Because what you truly need in life is to be redeemed and consoled. That's what you actually really need in life. You may not even know it. Only then will you be made whole, and only then you will be happy. And then it becomes natural to ask God to extend this consolation, this redemption to everybody else, and perhaps even use you as an instrument to help. It's only then that all these other blessings actually start entering our lives. Uh, Jesus said it like this, Uh, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things, he's talking about all the anxieties that we worry about in life. All these things will be added to you. That's how Jesus put it. So that's part two. We have to hope for the right things, friends. We have to stop hoping for the things that we think that they do feel like pressing needs to us. But we have to open our eyes to the greater need that we have in our hearts for consolation and redemption. Needs that aren't just met once when we become Christians, but that happen over the course of our lives. And that's Jesus showing up in our lives to bring us life and light and blessings. All right, solution part three. Those first two were long. This one is going to be quick. Um, Solution part three. uh, It's easy to lose sight in hoping for the right things. This isn't easy. Um, This world is full of distractions. I get it. Our flesh is constantly pricked to seek its own happiness, to seek its own well-being. I get it. The good news for us is that the Apostle Paul reminded the Roman church and all Christians everywhere that we have a significant tool to keep us moving forward in hope, to keep us on the right track. It's in Romans chapter 15. Um, I think we're going to throw it on the screen for you. It goes like this. This is what Paul wrote. He says, For whatever was written in the past... It was written for our instruction so that we may have hope through endurance and through the encouragement from the scriptures. Now, this is a remarkable saying. What he's saying is that everything written in the Bible was put there by God in order to give us encouragement to keep our hopes up, to press on in faith. How can that be true? Well, it can only be true if these scriptures tell the unified story of a God showing up to bring consolation and redemption for his people, which they do. It's an incredibly complicated book written over, you know, 1,500 years by 40 authors, but they have once, and many unifying themes, one of the biggest ones is that God wants to show up and console and redeem humanity. And if you spend just five minutes in this book every day, you can get your hopes aligned where they need to be. That's part three of the solution. And so this Advent season, um, it's right that we start with hope. Because if we get that right, we have a chance to receive all the subjects that follow, peace, joy, and love. And so I hope that today you believe that Jesus can show up right where you're at in your life. That you begin to reorient your hopes from what you think will make you happy and towards consolation and redemption 
your real fundamental needs as a human being to be consoled and redeemed by your heavenly Father. And that you might continually go back to the scriptures to be reminded of it, that you might have endurance to stay hoping in the right things. Once these things are in place, the blessed life that Jesus talked about, it becomes powerfully acceptable. Accessible. Not acceptable. It becomes powerfully accessible to all of his people. Pray with me. Father God, we come before you just acknowledging that that our, our hopes can be too small, that we've relegated uh, you fulfilling us to the end of time, and we ask that you would heal our hearts, that you would heal our minds, that, that you would continue to show us and reveal to us what our true needs are as human beings, that we might seek after you with our whole hearts so that we might find that abundant life that your son Jesus talked about. We praise you that your son is adventing now in our hearts and in our lives. We ask that you would continue to send your Holy Spirit to manifest him to us, to reveal him to us in our lives and all the ways. We ask that you would quicken our desire for a spirit that would reveal your son who wants to console us and redeem us, that shows us the consolation and the redemption of the Father. God, may it be true for all of us. I thank you for my friends who are tuning in today. I ask that you would give them comfort in the midst of their trials, in the midst of their sin. I ask that you would give them redemption in the midst of their sin, powerfully deliver them, and also in the midst of their trials. For we know that that's what you want to do as a father. Teach us how to ask for it. We pray all this in the name of Jesus and by your spirit. Amen.